I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Over the last couple of years, there seems to have been an increasing number of television ads that suggest that different medications ought to be used in depressions. But a lot of people are confused because some of the ads seem to be for what they call a bipolar depression, and some of the ads seem to be for what is called a regular depression. Mindy Rosenblum is a psychiatrist in Rhode Island, and I heard her speak a couple of weeks ago, and I was very impressed with how she was able to express some of the differences in these diagnostic categories. Dr. Rosenblum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's a very important topic, and it's actually worthy of confusion because it can be confusing for the consumer, and unfortunately, it can occasionally be missed by fairly seasoned practitioners because they're just not asking a couple of key questions. Well, what, what would those key questions be? What, you know, what is the difference between a, we call them a unipolar depression sometimes and a bipolar depression? What are some of the differences? So a bipolar depression can look exactly the same as what we call unipolar depression. It's all about the history and the pattern. If you looked exactly in the moment about what's going on today, it would be indistinguishable. It's just like saying one headache versus another. The difference is there's similar numbers of symptoms over a similar time period. So the mood can be down, appetite can change, energy can be quite low, there could be a lot of guilt and hopelessness, and it would look exactly in that moment like a major depression, concentration, and, and quite frightening suicidal thinking or plans. The whole difference is in the history. At some point prior to that moment, and it could have been two days before, two weeks before, two years before, 20 years before, there was a period of time for at least four to seven days when they had a manic or hypomanic period, and I can explain that. If Would you, you because need. as you're going through this, the question that comes up, so what's the difference? Why is the difference important? How does it play out in the actual treatment? That's critically important. I think that's what the clinicians miss. When I trained years ago, we didn't understand it, and now we do. So the difference is if you have had a manic or hypomanic episode, it actually really is a different illness. The brain is set up a bit differently, and then the body reacts to the treatments differently. And if we treat it like a major depression rather than what we call a bipolar, and because they are different illnesses, we're jeopardizing the patient in the long run of getting into other mood states that are very unstable, potentially with more suicidal thinking and plans, more substance abuse, clearly higher rates of hospitalization, and a worse prognosis. So if someone comes in and they tell the doctor, I'm depressed, and it's an internist, could be a very good doctor, very trying to do things correctly, what should that doctor do to delineate? Just look at the history of a, of a manic episode in the past, or is there more? Well, it's an excellent question. They do need to free up another 60 seconds okay. and feed back to the patient that I'm hearing you correctly and they obviously share a little bit of pressure because the patient's going to think they're not being heard of and just say, I understand how you're feeling right now. Can you recall a period of time when you felt the opposite or somewhat the opposite? You're more social, doing more, lots of energy, and very critically, one of the most critical is a period of time when they just didn't need sleep, which is different than insomnia. They slept a little bit, and then they felt energized and had big ideas, and they were going to work on them. In the type 2 bipolar depression, in the type 2 bipolar, this episode is what we call hypomania, and unfortunately, 
The patient thought it was a really good time. They didn't realize that there were some consequences, and they thought that was great. They didn't see it as anything in the manic spectrum, and unfortunately, they might not think to share it with the doctor. So the doctor might ask, and the patient's thinking in the extreme, like something out of a, a movie that, you know, a great actor would do, like a Robin Williams or Jim Carrey, that they're so fun and gregarious, but there are lower levels of it. So it is quite helpful if there's a family member in the waiting room to bring them in. That's a very... No, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting point because many times people do not see that as part of the illness. Right. And they think that that's based, that would be like their nirvana, how they want to be all the time, to be hypomanic. Sadly enough, it's a very small piece of their life, and there's been some data out of the National Institute of Mental Health that this could be 8 or 9%, you know, over many years, but that's the ideal. And so the depression feels even lower <laughs> because they are measuring it against periods of hypomania. And does the treatment really vary that much? Is, it, is that a key diagnostic element to know whether it's a bipolar depression or a unipolar depression insofar as which medications we give them? This is the whole critical pieces. It actually is the whole story. It is the most critical piece of information because the pharmacology, not so much the supportive treatments and the cognitive treatments and some of the interpersonal treatments might not be that different. The patient education will be different and the family education because the triggers and the symptoms are different. But in terms of the pharmacology, it is very different. We really want to focus on what we call mood stabilizing agents, some of which will work more acutely. And unfortunately, that's a fairly short list according to the FDA of what we have good actual data for. But we have a fair number of medications that will work well to prevent future episodes or relapses. The key thing here, either mood disorder, like every illness, we not only want the patient to feel better or somewhat better than they are, but we actually want to get them into remission. And to get them into remission, the data and the information we have is not with classic antidepressant agents. If anything, as I said, they might jeopardize the stability according to our knowledge now. And we certainly wouldn't give them alone, but we want to get these mood-stabilizing agents which prevent the patient the hardship of going through another mood episode or decrease the likelihood as much as we can so of if, going through it. So if a, again, well-intended non-psychiatrist, and I'm not putting them down by any stretch of the imagination, looks at a patient who's feeling depressed and just gives them, you know, I'm not recommending this drug, but just gives them old-fashioned Prozac because everyone knows the name of that drug. Right. Is there an inherent possibility that it, it could worsen the situation? From what we understand, and a lot of our data does not, not necessarily come from Prozac. It comes from some of the older okay. generation ones. We call the tricyclic, but the concept in terms of many seasoned clinicians is it might trigger the patient into a third type of mood state within the bipolar spectrum, not just the manic or depressed, of something we call the mixed. This unfortunate person is experiencing at the same time an agitation. And the agitation, when you really carefully tease it out, is some symptoms of mania at the same time as depression. And it's a very unstable place to be. And the patient's impulsivity in terms of self-harm is very high. What classically will happen is, because the patients don't know all this, they're going to come back and say, I actually feel worse. And so the um, doctor might increase the dose. Or... Exactly. They might, you know, increase the dose instead of come back and say, oh, do they feel worse? And go back and ask the same exact questions they asked the first time. So a lot of times patients will be described as irritable, but irritable can be depressed or man manic. You need to 
see that when you carefully tease out that when you're going through the symptoms, and again, they might not have insight into mania because they think of it in its, you know, most... Florid form. Florid form, exactly. But there are lower levels of it. And to catch those levels because we want to use agents that are better geared to quieting it down at the moment. But in the long run, and as far as our data is concerned, the only way Prozac will do that in a bipolar depression is if it's added to a mood stabilizing agent. And a mood, okay, so there are the, well, let me get to this, because this is somewhat confusing for a lot of people. They see the advertisements, and we know that there are other, we call them uh, atypical antipsychotics that are being used to stabilize people with bipolar depressions. It seems odd that a drug that started as an antipsychotic medication is now being used for a mood disorder and people get confused by this and I don't blame them and and my colleagues do and I needed it explained a a number of times it comes back to our basic chemistry lesson is whenever we take medicines they don't only target one set of receptors not just in the brain but in other parts of the body that's why we get the desired effect and side effect but what we've learned is that there's a balance or an ensemble of receptors are in the brain which is what we're concerned about with mood disorders that if we tap into them at different potentially different milligrams that we're going to tap into different properties and so for instance there's a number of medicines when they are given at a lower dose, might be more mood stabilizing, and at a higher dose, because they're going to block more of one of the types of dopamine receptors, the D2, that work on the psychosis. The other thing that's kind of forgotten is in bipolar disorder, a fair percentage of patients actually can be psychotic, and so they would certainly cover that, but they have other serotonin receptors that are involved in the property and the chemistry of these quote-unquote atypical agents, and therefore they can be helpful directly in terms of mood and not just psychosis. And, and one of the other things that has evolved over the last, shall we, ta- shall we say, oh, 15, 20 years, is that we are using a, an increasing number of anticonvulsant medications. I've had patients say to me, but doctor, this medication is for seizures. Why are you giving it to me? What's your spin on that? My spin, and again, I don't do the bench science of that piece. I'm the clinician that reads the articles. But my understanding is, and I use the word uh, like a seizure, the feeling is in the brain that it's kindled. Like you're, I guess in Florida, you might not light the fireplace as much as we do up here in New England. But there's a kindling, there's a spark, and that the illness is triggered that way. And so probably by serendipity, some of our earlier agents like carbon mazepine and valproic acid were started and obviously later lamotrigine. Not every anticonvulsant will work, but some of them will work fairly rapidly. Something like lamotrigine takes a little bit longer just because we have to slowly build it up to avoid some very concerning side effects. But the concept is it, it, it affects that, stops that kindling that would set off an episode. So again, as we understand through PET scans and spec scans how the brain works, we're better able to make choices about the pharmacology. This is why sometimes a patient ends up on two medicines because we're trying to take two approaches, just like in the area of hypertension. So it might take a diuretic plus another type of agent because we're coming at it at different angles. Number one, to give them the best response and remission, but tolerability as well. So it really makes a very um, confusing picture initially that if someone comes in and simply says, I'm depressed, then we have the regular depression that doesn't need the mood stabilizers, but, you know, the Cymbalta and Lexapro and Prozac and 
We have many of them as opposed to the, the bipolar ones. So you're painting a picture that there has to be a little bit more work done diagnostically. And diagnostically can include a verbal history and then getting releases of information for a prior practitioner or a family member or a loved one. We think it sounds confusing, doctor, but it really isn't because if I presented with a headache, who would ask me a bunch of questions to distinguish, is it a tension headache? Is it a migraine? Is it due to sinus? Is it due to blood pressure? Similar line of questions if I said, oh my, gee doc, I've been having this rash. And you would ask me about detergents and sun exposure and itchiness and pain. So what I'm going to, most important comment to leave you and the listeners to is that the word bipolar, unipolar depression, that word depression is just a symptom, like a headache, like a rash, like a cough, like weight gain, like weight loss, like diarrhea. Fair enough. It's up to the clinician to find out more about the diarrhea, you know, and same way. We have to ask more about the symptom of depression, that the word depression does not equal major depression or unipolar. One of the things that always also helps to confuse people is that depressions can come and go. Even unipolar depressions can come and go. So if someone has a series of depressions, is there a, a rule of thumb as to whether or not we uh, call it a unipolar, try that first, and then when do we go to a, a bipolar depression diagnosis? I realize I'm getting complex here, but that's the complexity of the situation. No, and I think you're raising all the key issues, and this is something that I have to question myself, is most people over a lifetime, if you look at it, they're going to have dramatically more episodes of depression than the mania, hypomania, or hopefully the mixed. And so depending on where you hit them, classically, sometimes the first episodes as a teenager may be all depression. So they're answering the questions honestly. I mean, it might not be till a lack of sleep or, you know, experimenting with substance abuse or maybe needing a steroid, you know, for asthma or something where it is triggered off. Once it's kindled and you enter the bipolar spectrum, you don't go back to being major depression if everything is accurate. So whether it happened naturally with a manic episode or hypomanic or it was provoked by a medication or a substance abuse, you're in that spectrum. And both illnesses, major depression, unipolar, and bipolar are recurrent. Now, we try to do our best pharmacologically and lifestyle-wise to have very long periods of time of a mood state that's stable, but unfortunately they can be triggered. There's a, a lot of genetic risk within families. And as I said, there can be triggers of certain stressors, but over time, once the person has been declared a bipolar with minimal stress, potentially no stress, they could present with an episode, but hopefully it would not be continuous mood state. That's when you might get confused with some other substance histories or other character disorder. It clearly should be something that's coming in episodes and hopefully periods of time where they're feeling well. But if you looked over the lifetime, you always, if I met someone for the first time, I couldn't assume because they're 50 years of age that it's a major depression without taking a history. If I took a history and they were 50 and they absolutely never had a manic or hypomanic and I've interviewed every family member, then I'd probably feel clear this is a major depression, particularly if they've taken a series of antidepressants and it hasn't provoked it. There are some concepts that postpartum 
If there is a mood state, we want to really be careful about bipolar. If the depression started before puberty, there's a suggestion that it might be bipolar. If there's a strong family history, there's a suggestion. And particularly if they get worse on antidepressants, there's a concern that it might be bipolar. There's also a concern about how long that someone needs to be on a medication. Again, there was a feeling, a rule of thumb, that if it's a standard, regular, major depression, that maybe they need the medication for a year year, maybe. What's your experience on this, and how long do people need to be on the medications for a regular depression, a unipolar depression, and for a bipolar depression? Excellent question. So there's a couple of rules of thumbs. They're both, both recurrent. We usually say a major depression, if you've had one episode, it's 50% likely to come back. And we classically, I treat about nine months or whatever the doses that got them well, and then I slowly taper back for two reasons. One, so they don't have rebound symptoms or discontinuation symptoms on whatever the agent is. Some of them will do that. And number two, if they start to get symptomatic, I'm not starting at the basement level. I just bump it up a little bit and I can hopefully recapture a stable mood. If they've had two or three episodes, particularly if there's psychosis or suicidality, sometimes we opt to treat four or five years. And so it's particularly important that we have a variety of agents available to us because this has to be well tolerated and affordable for the person and convenient for them so that they can stay on it four or five years. And then there are unfortunate people that have had many episodes that have been quite severe or hospitalized or extreme consequences of a major depression where our advice is to stay in a full term. Now, some people had such a bad episode on their own, say, oh, I know I can't come off of this again. So that's major depression. And bipolar, again, we only have data going out, let's say 18 months or so, two years. So we only are speculating, but clinicians who've been in practice a long time there are certain medicines that have proved themselves to maintain a given patient, that it's well tolerated at a certain dose, and it's been preventing mood. And sometimes patients would say, you know, under these same circumstances, if I wasn't on this medication, I would have been ill. And so each patient, unfortunately, might have a different combination or medicine that holds them best, potentially because of the way their receptors are set up. And they respond, we don't exactly know why certain medicines work. We just postulate. And then during an acute episode, sometimes we add a little extra in. But it seems to be that in bipolar, it's a bit different than major depression, that we try to use long-term treatment. It's very interesting because the recurrent theme throughout everything that you're saying assumes a good working relationship, an honest relationship with a lot of good history between the patient and the doctor. Absolutely. My rule of thumb is because a lot of people come in and they don't have insight into bipolar or it's a shock or they never thought of it or they want it to be ADD or they want it to be something something else. And so unfortunately, there's some extra stigma or negative information or lack of understanding. And what I say is it's a mood state, just like my analogy with the headache or the rash. When the person came with the headache, they just want to take whatever it is to make it go away and not come back. Similarly with anything, a joint pain, anything. We have to get to that level of understanding is that we feel for the patient that they're uncomfortable and just so having such a time of hardship and the consequences of it. And, the, and that we're on their side and we're going to work with them to individualize the treatment plan. Some of it might be pharmacology. We're going to share with them the facts. What's the point of hiding anything? We're going to share any warnings or potential side effects because everyone can Google and look things up nowadays and put it in perspective of what will work for them and show them there are a number of options. Unfortunately, over time, some people's options might narrow because of disease states or comorbid medical conditions or finances or access to things. But it's all about giving the patient the best quality of life based on our choices, 
but we have to be good listeners, and they have to have insight, and it really helps if they will sign a release to a loved one just to find out, you know, is this valid? Because sometimes they didn't realize it, and they remind them that 10 years ago they were getting up in the middle of the night to mow the lawn or to work on a lesson plan, or they were going to church a bit more normal than they normally do. And for that person, those are those specific signs of hypomania. This is really intriguing, and it speaks to the fact that we really do have a lot of very good treatment out there. It just takes a little time, takes a little work, but we can get there. Mindy Rosenblum is a psychiatrist in Rhode Island. As you can hear, she's full of lots of energy and lots of good insight, and I thank you so very much for sharing your thoughts with us this afternoon. Have a good day. You too.